Our text this morning is going to be in John chapter 6, so please begin turning there. John chapter 6, and it's a big chapter, so we're going to be in verse 52 through 71 today. John chapter 6, verses 52 through 71. And we're going to continue Jesus' bread of life discourse, and today we're going to be looking at this uh, contrast of people who stay with Jesus versus these people who leave him because of some of the things that he said. So before we go to the word, let's go to him in prayer and let's uh, ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes, because Lord, we love to keep them closed, and we love to read from this word what would help us and benefit us and make us look like the king of the universe. And so convict us of that sin. Convict us of our idolatry. Open our hearts that we might see the wisdom, the truth of your word, that you would teach us from it, that we might worship you in spirit and truth that we might be guided in our lives as we go about and as we do ministry on this earth and as we grow more and more to be like your son, Jesus. Open our hearts, open our eyes, that we might see the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I was reading this text, I was uh, it made me think a lot of the current political season. Uh, with a new year, we have this new election season, and it's everybody's favorite thing, I know. Uh, so, and I was just amazed at how what, so much of what politicians have to say is the same song and dance every four years. You kind of see the same thing, you kind of hear the same things every year, you know, and you and you basically, people basically pick their candidate based on their feelings or their upbringing or maybe one or two important issues, most people are that way. And so that's pretty understandable, and the candidates know that, and that's why they speak in generalities. And so, however, every election, there are a few surprises. And one thing that comes out to me when I think of this kind of surprises in elections was uh, the summer of 2011, and that was the summer that we actually moved from Maryland to here, and there was the election. And you could watch the polls almost every other day, and there was a new Republican frontrunner, and it would change about every five or six days. And, but it, and it usually had something to do with something that the media had drug up about that person that would cause them to, like, slump off the uh, polls or something that that person said in front of cameras that was just bad and they didn't listen to their speechwriters or something. Um I'll just name some names, and you guys can probably remember these. Like Rick Perry, for instance, in the debates, when he was asked about his own policies, didn't even know what they were. And, of course, his election hopes tanked. You can just see it in the polls. It was way up here. And then uh, Herman Cain, the owner of Godfather's Pizza, he was accused of an affair, and his uh, his policy – or his – rating went down, and you keep going, and I remember even further back, I think it was 2004, um, when Howard Dean, remember the Democratic frontrunner at the time, 
decided he, he was so excited about getting third place in Iowa, which, which, which was kind of strange, that he like screamed enthusiastically and then no one wanted to vote for him anymore. Uh, there are lots of these. I actually read a list of the, the top ten political gaffes, and I didn't know who most of them were, so I didn't mention them. I, these are all ones that I remember. Uh, but you can drag up lots of these from the past, where one where they say something or they found something about these people, and they their political careers just go to pot after that. Because when you're running in a popularity contest, which is essentially all it is, you're very likely to say something or do something that's going to make you less popular with a particular group of people. And so that brings us to our text. Jesus wasn't in a popularity contest, but he regularly said things that would not only have him less popular with the masses, but that would have his life threatened. And the difference, of course, is that what Jesus is saying versus what these candidates for president are saying is that Jesus' words are the words of life. When he speaks, things come to be. Hearts are changed. The world is turned on its head. When Jesus speaks, the curse of sin is melted away. Life is renewed. Wherever he walks, wherever he talks, people are changed. Things happen. We've, we've read through this book of John so far. We've seen him do some miraculous things. We know. And yet, there are many who followed him who were just waiting to see when he would finally mess up. Or just waiting for another handout. Or some great miracle. So in our story today, Jesus is continuing this discourse that we talked about last week. And, and all of chapter 6 is kind of this same theme where Jesus begins by feeding the 5,000 and the, the bread and the fish. And then he crosses the lake to go to the synagogue and all of these people follow him. Why do they follow him? Because it's breakfast time and they're hungry and they want more food. And we talked last week about how Jesus kind of turned that on its head and said, I am the bread of life. And you need to eat the food that will endure to eternal life as opposed to that which will leave you wanting more. And so this story, we're going to see that Jesus is going to say some things in which he's going to lose lots of followers. And I think in that it's going to cause us to examine our own distaste at times for Jesus' words here. We need to examine our own hearts. Because I think on the surface, we would all say, oh yeah, I like what Jesus says here. But then the way that we do life sometimes doesn't necessarily agree with that. So it's going to cause us to examine our hearts. It's going to help us to see the sin in our lives regarding our unbelief of the gospel. And so in this story, we're going to consider two points. The hard truth of the gospel. And then second, the words that give eternal life. So this morning, as we read the text together, let's stand in honor of God's word. <clears throat> this is John chapter 6, verses 52 through 71. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, 
for I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a bit of a background. Remember, these people who followed Jesus across the water for more food, they challenged him and they said, show us a sign that we might do what you've asked us to do. Believe in him, basically. Show us a sign. And then they said, well, our fathers ate food in the wilderness because it rained down from heaven and they ate it. And Jesus let them know that he himself was the true bread of life. And that his coming represented the fulfillment of what happened there in Exodus and the manna from heaven. You, you can look at verse 51. Go back to verse 51 real quick. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him for life, for the life of the world, is my flesh. His coming in the flesh was to show that man can have something that will last him for eternal life. He quickly reminded these people that your fathers ate bread in the wilderness and they died. But what I have to give you will last you for eternal life. And it is belief in the one whom he has sent, whom the Father has sent, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that will give you that life. And so as a quick aside to this passage, this passage, you know, talk, Jesus talks a lot about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so I want to be clear that this is not a passage directly about the Lord's Supper. And so we read concerning the Lord's Supper today in our profession of faith. And, but there are some definite links here, and we're going to talk about those links. 
the Roman Catholic Church has taken this passage and they've said, yes, see that the bread and the juice, they are, they are real physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is an example of why we should believe that. Jesus here is saying to literally eat his flesh and to literally drink his blood. And the element, the elements that you take when you're, that what they would say is you take the elements and they transubstantiate. They use this big word, which just means to change substance after we put them in our mouths. And they literally become the blood and the body of Jesus. They borrowed this from the pagan philosopher Aristotle and they basically repolished it as a biblical belief. The framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith wrote what you have there in front of you on your bulletin. And this is in the Westminster Confession. It's also it's in chapter 27 or 29 of the Westminster Confession. It's there in the shorter catechism there, and I won't read it all because we just got through reading it. But what do they say? They say that we do not take these elements corporally or carnally, meaning that as we take these elements, they're not really the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he already gave those to us on the cross. We don't need to sacrifice them every single week because he gave them once and for all. And so then how do we take his body and his blood? We do it by faith. We do it spiritually as, and he blesses us through that because the people who wrote the confession as well as the people who wrote the scriptures, for that matter, John the, the Apostle here, they realize that this passage, Jesus is not literally talking about eating him, but throughout this passage, throughout the book of John, over and over, what have we even seen up through the first six chapters? That the idea of receiving Jesus is equating it with belief in him. And belief in him leads to what? Eternal life. And so the supper that we'll take this morning, the supper is a sign of what Christ did for us. But it has no ability to do the actual works of Christ itself. It cannot save us. It only points forward to the one who can. And so that said, it's obvious from this text that there were many issues with these words, though. There were a lot of people there in the synagogue that day, and they had issues with these words. So we're going to look at the real reason behind their problems. And so with that, we'll turn to the first point, the hard truth of the gospel. Starting there at verse 52. There was a dispute among the Jews, and they were saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? It's a good question. And usually when people are talking among themselves, and I think we've even seen this up to this point in this gospel, when there's some sort of you know, when there's kind of this aside and they were disputing among themselves or they were talking among themselves and they say something, it usually has to do with some kind of quibbling over a lack of clarity. We saw the disciples do this. Who gave him food? Did someone, did you go get him food? You know, remember that with the woman at the well? We saw the Pharisees do this with the, he, did he say he's going to build the temple in three days? It took 40 years to do that. Now we're seeing these random folks in the synagogue do this. So it's, it's not abnormal for people to confuse what Jesus is saying. And what does Jesus always do? He knows the hearts of men and women. He straightens them out. Even though they don't voice their concerns all the time, he knows them. He hears them. He sees them. 
And so notice then how Jesus ups the ante here in this passage. Because in the passage that we looked at last week, he called himself the bread of life. And right there at the end, he talked about whoever eats the bread, and the bread is my flesh. But so he's going to up the ante. And he says this. He uses much more visceral language here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Whoever does this abides in me, and I in him. We'll see this language again as we study through the book of John, particularly in John 15. But I'll, I'll save you the suspense. What this abides in me means is the exact same idea that Jesus has been talking about this whole time through the book of John. Receiving him, believing in him, doing the work that, he, that endures to eternal life. Belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to make sure they are still connecting this with their fathers in the wilderness who ate manna and died. Look at verses 57 and 58. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, talking about himself, not the bread that the fathers ate and died. Because remember, they were so excited about their fathers having ate bread in the wilderness, having ate manna. And well, our fathers, you know, they, they were able to rain down bread from heaven and, and they were able to eat. Well, I'm from heaven and I am the true bread of life, is what Jesus said. And he says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness and they died. That bread was not able to save them. Only faith in me will save them. And so why is Jesus making this so closely related to his actual body? We had to think we had to think about that. Why is his, his actual body and his actual physical blood and physical body that he's making this a relation to? Because what is it that he will sacrifice on the cross for his people? His actual physical body. He will shed his actual blood. Remember another story that's connected to the whole manna from heaven story in Exodus. It's the one that actually led them out of Egypt. And that's the story of the Passover lamb, which the people of the synagogue would have definitely known. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Remember, as we go through the book of John, the New Testament is essentially just telling us what to believe about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very good and necessary for us as believers today because we can look back on it and now we can see Jesus. So look at Exodus chapter 12 and this whole passage is how this whole chapter is how the people are to prepare the lamb, the Passover lamb. So I'm going to choose a couple of verses here and there out of this. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. 
And just as a as a reminder, remember the the angel of death was going to pass over all the homes, and they were instructed to wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And so these are those exact instructions here, seven and eight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And look at verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then go down to verse 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord has given you, as he promised you, you shall keep this service. I love this verse, 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So what do we have? We have these instructions that they are to sacrifice the unblemished lamb. They are to eat its flesh. They are to take the blood and put it on the doorposts so that when the Lord comes down to strike down the gods of Egypt, the firstborn of Egypt, the people of Israel will be spared. Why? Because they're great people. No, because of the blood of the lamb. That is why. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is this Passover lamb. He shed his blood and his broken flesh are the payment for our sin. And through his sacrifice, the wrath of God passes over us and goes straight to him hanging on the cross. All of that wrath for each one of us was put onto him when he hung on the cross. You cannot have eternal life unless you take the shed blood of Jesus, his sacrifice as a replacement for your own blood, which deserves hell, which deserves the wrath of God. That wrath is due you because of your sins. You cannot have eternal life unless you have Jesus' battered body stand in your place because of his righteousness. He is good. You are not. You need Jesus Christ. The fathers ate bread and they died because they weren't eating the real thing. Jesus Christ is that which all of those types, the manna from heaven, the Passover lamb, all the types we've talked about pointed to and partaking in him, believing in him, receiving him, gives you the right to be called the son of God. And what is their response when they, when they hear this? Look at verse 60. What is their response? 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I love listening to it. Why is this their response? It was my response until he changed my heart. Because this is the response of an obstinate people, dead in their trespasses and their sins. Why are they saying this? Well, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to tell us why they're saying this. Because Jesus, look at 61, he knows himself that his disciples are grumbling about this. He knows that they're grumbling. And so he's going to tell us what's going on. Look at verses 61 through 65. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, said this, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and who it was that would betray him. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So take, take note of that. Do you take offense at this? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What were they upset about? What really bothered them? That's what bothered them. That it's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What is Jesus saying? There were many there who still were trusting in their own merit. Well, I'm Jewish. I go to Passover. I go to all the feasts. I go to I go to the Sabbath every every Saturday. I do the sacrifices. I'm, I do everything that I'm told. All right. I don't need this Jesus because I'm a perfect Jew. Wrong. You're far from it. None of us are perfect. We all need this Jesus. They were still trusting in their own merit. So when they heard what Jesus had to say, they were willing to eat the food the day before when he made the loaves and the fish into like this bountiful harvest. But now that they're having to commit to the teaching of Jesus, what do they want? No part of it. It's belief in Jesus. One, belief in Jesus is belief that his righteousness alone can save you. And two, look there at verse 65. Belief in Jesus, we only believe because the Father has granted it to us. He has caused us to believe. The people here, they didn't get it. The bread of life, the blood, the flesh of Jesus, none of it. Why? Because this stuff is not born of the flesh. It's not something you can just come up with on your own through wisdom and human and intellect. This is of the Spirit, because the Spirit gives life. And many of them didn't have it, because they were trusting alone in their own works. They were trusting that they could save themselves. This is a hard teaching today, if we're honest, that those who think that their works can save them, because they are dead in their sins and their trespasses. There are those who really think, their good works are going to save them. Well, I'm a good person. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm better than you are. And to be clear, everyone in Christ wrestles with this. We all do. This is our 
whole struggle as believers, honestly, is coming to grips more and more with our own righteousness. The fact that our own righteousness, anything that we can drum up, is garbage compared to the to what Christ has, compared to anything that he can do. And we need his righteousness to replace our own. We are absolutely in need of it. Believers know this, even though we struggle with it. And we live as if this is true. But unbelievers do not, and they cannot. It was a hard teaching because it went completely against their God of the universe. And who was their God of the universe? The one they saw in the mirror. It's a hard teaching because they have to rely on someone else completely for salvation from the wrath of God. And guess who that person is? God himself. They have to rely on God to save them from himself. And they weren't willing to do that. And it's in that realization that we have to bow the knee. We have to admit our own frailty. We have to admit our own sinfulness. These are difficult things. But when we come face to face with God in the flesh, we will see that we are found wanting. Todd read from Isaiah 6 last week. What does Isaiah say when he comes face to face with the Holy One? Woe to me, because I am undone. He can't even hold himself together when he's come face to face with the Son of God. We are just like that. If we don't see ourselves as sinful, we don't see ourselves at all. We need help, which he gives us, thankfully. So for believers, we have to remember this teaching of the gospel. It's something that we must always come face to face with. Because even as believers, we will despair and we will struggle because we are attempting to do it on our own. If we ever get to the point where we look as, at the truth of the gospel as old hat or been there, done that, and we are looking for something new in the faith, then we begin building an idol at that point and our name is engraved on the base. These disciples of Jesus finally heard enough of the gospel and they couldn't hear any more and they walked away because they believed their own body and their own blood to be enough. They did not trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever here today, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is the only way. You may think this is a hard teaching, and if you do, you're actually in a really good spot. If you're hearing this and you're like, wow, that's difficult. I did not know that I was a sinner. I did not know that I was in need of the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. You need that. Do not rely on your own righteousness anymore. It cannot save you from the wrath of God. If you think this is a hard teaching, trying to save yourself is much harder. Cast off your own righteousness. Receive the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so moving on, the next point, the words of eternal life. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This represents a big turning point in this book because a crowd, the crowd that was following Jesus is getting smaller. But the cost of following Jesus is going to start going up significantly. Jesus had the 12 that we're all familiar with, but he also had many others. And you see in other places in the Gospels, he appoints as many, many others, as many as 
72 to go out and do ministry to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And a lot of them left. However, there were always this 12, the ones whom Jesus had given a special calling, who would continue to have that calling as they grew later in life, as the only apostles of our Lord, all who went on to die a martyr's death for the cause of Christ, except for one, which he mentions there at the end. So he turns to the 12, and he's, and they haven't left yet. He says, you want to go away as well? And Peter's confession here is maybe one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Simon Peter answered him, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed what he says, meaning that the Spirit has given them life. They saw it, sometimes very slowly, but they saw what the Lord was talking about and the work that they had to do. He says, we have come to know. They have come to know. What have they seen in their short times with Jesus? They've seen him turn water to wine. They've seen him turn five loaves to more than 5,000. They've seen him walk on water. They have come to know that he is the one whom the Father has sent, the Holy One of God. Have you ever caught yourself doubting your faith? Sure you have. We all do. Because sometimes we are just like the ones who said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? And it doesn't have to be the gospel. It can just be any part of our Christianity. Anything. I regularly converse, converse with non-believers, and particularly with, with atheists, and I usually get the same sorts of rebuttals over and over again. Well, you don't have any evidence for your God, or why is there suffering if your God is so good, or, or we have science now, we don't need religion, and all these different things that I hear constantly. And it's real easy to find yourself slipping sometimes, if you want to be honest, or if I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is hard to believe sometimes. I mean, I look at some of my atheistic friends, and they're like, well, look at, look at that man. He, everything he does, he does so much good for his community. He's, he's good to his wife. He's a good father to his kids. Look at how much we've accomplished as human beings. Look how we're always trying to rid the world of bad things. I could go on, but what are those arguments at their core? Those are arguments for the deity of humanity, aren't they? And we've been trying to do that ever since the serpent offered Eve a fruit. We've been trying to take the place of God, usurp his authority, take his throne. Jesus warned them of this, didn't he? There at the end, 71-71, he even told them that one of them would completely fall away. Can you imagine being told that? You're sitting there with Jesus' 12 closest friends and him saying, well, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to do that. One of you is a devil. That would have been tough to hear. 
even though they stayed, and we have to hear this, they aren't immune to difficulty. We see this. Thomas would doubt. Peter would deny them. What did they do when the, when the centurions came to arrest him? They flee. Peter gets out a sword to fight, which is kind of the, the opposite but similar response. We're just like that sometimes. However, what does he say up in the previous passage? Those that the Father has given me, I will never cast out, and I will raise them up on the last day. We're going to struggle. We're going to be like Thomas. I'm not going to believe this unless I see the holes in his hands. We're going to be like Peter. I don't know him. We're going to struggle. But Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go that isn't about us making our own righteousness superb and God? We can go no other place. He is the Holy One of God, and it is through the righteousness of Christ alone that we have salvation. Many of his disciples finally heard enough. They left Jesus. Once they realized that he asked of them, the only thing he asked of them was to receive him as the only atonement for their sins. Their own works wouldn't cut it, and they left. They couldn't handle that. And this is our struggle as Christians. This is the heart of our sin, and this is the heart of our struggle to walk with Jesus. This is our, the heart of our struggles. We struggle as we raise our families, as we worship, as we do ministry together, as we're out in the workplace, as we come face to face with our Savior. But we have to receive Him as our substitute, our Passover lamb, His broken body, His shed blood instead of ours. So brothers and sisters, he alone has the words of eternal life. Let us always go to him, receiving him as our Lord, believing in the truth of the gospel that sets us free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we, we struggle. I know your 12 disciples must have been struggling that day as they saw the many walk, walk away. We struggle as we see people walk away in our own lives. But Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. And so help us to cling to those words. Help us, Lord, to cling to you and you alone and your righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.